bodies and filius O Master who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures. Instill in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that we may overcome all carnal death and create upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will. For you are the enlightenment to our souls and bodies, O Christ God, and to we give glory together with your Father and your all holy, gracious, and life giving spirit, both now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. Amen. St. John the Evangelist, pray for Christ. Christ is risen. and creation comes into being and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it and again that was that the themes of light and darkness that we're going to be keeping. I just finished the Gospel of John with the Missionaries of Charity on Tuesday and in the last study we were talking about light and darkness again there it was. All the way through John that light and darkness is going to be there. If you guys don't know I teach Gospel of John for Missionaries of Charity I've done it for, I don't know, four or five years now. So, um, 
So we're going to be getting these, these, keeping these themes in mind and what they mean. Okay, for John, light and darkness. What is what's his background? The light uh, shines in the darkness. Darkness does not comprehend it. What does he mean by that? What did we talked about last time? Is light good? Sorry, I was in my shirt. No, you're all right. I'm okay with you being holy enough to do That's okay. I didn't know. <laughs> oh, you thought we were student study in the church? Yes. No. I was talking about earlier. I tried never to talk in the church. Oh. Okay. Last night was, I think, my first time. Well, I'm sorry. It's my first time. So. That's okay. Well, um, there's some wine and cheese. And I'm sorry. Oh, yes. Um, is the light good? Yes. yes. What's the light? Light. Who is the light? Jesus. God. Christ. Jesus. The Word. The Word is Jesus. We're all on the same page on that one, right? And the light is Jesus. It's two things John's using: the Word and light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And in that full, rich understanding of comprehend, what does it mean to be able to comprehend something? Marianne. To understand it. Yeah, don't just give me another word, though. So tell me about it. What does it mean? To if, you, comprehend? if you comprehend something, it's unified to you. So when we talk about the darkness not comprehending the light, you mean that the darkness couldn't, like, the light could not come into the darkness. Or rather, the, the darkness, or not that the light it, couldn't come yeah, into the darkness. Yeah, but, yeah, that's better. The darkness yeah. rejected the light. Yeah, and it's this tension between the two. It couldn't it couldn't take it in. To comprehend is to take something in completely and be unified with it. Right? It says to wrap your arms around it. Okay, to have it be totally yours. And the darkness could not do that. And so there's this tension in John between the light and the darkness. The darkness representing evil and the devil and, and all of those people that associate with the devil, that darkness is going to come back for us over and over again. And that light, being Christ, is going to constantly walk into contact with the darkness. And the darkness will either be lit up, it will go away, or uh, it won't. And it will flee from the light. Okay? Verse 6. Anson, go ahead. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness to the light. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. Okay. I, and I read you St. Augustine last time on this, on John, and the, the role of John. How important is John in the Gospel? Here, John, John the Baptist. How important is he? Very fair. Why is he important? Yes, well, right in our text right here in verse 7, what's it say? He gave it that what? In order that, whenever you see in order that or so that in the scripture, you've got to pay attention. Okay, in order that, what? That we might believe. And remember, for John, his entire gospel is written. For what reason? That we might believe, and through believing, we might what? Be saved. Be saved, or receive the life of God. Okay, and when we receive the life of God, we become children of God. Okay, we become partakers in the divine nature. So if John is being sent, in order that we may believe, John's essential to the gospel. 
Okay? John the Evangelist sees John the Baptist as being absolutely essential to the mission of Christ. And for us, that we are led to Christ through John the Baptist. And the reason that we're going to find out is that John the Evangelist, who's writing this, was a disciple of John the Baptist. He met Jesus Christ for the first time while standing on the banks of the Jordan River with his master, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points to Christ and says, follow him. And at that point, our author leaves the side of his master and joins Christ. But he wasn't supposed to. I assume that he met him before. What's that? He wasn't supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I met, I assume, I am sure he met him before. Because it says here. Yes, Jesus met John the Baptist before. Is okay? I'm talking about John the Evangelist. That John the Evangelist, writing this text, is introduced to Christ through the hands of John the Baptist. Okay? And so, that for, from John the Evangelist's standpoint, from the author's standpoint, his master is the one that leads us to Christ. Because it's his master that led him to Christ. And so he's writing his whole text from that perspective. And John the, Evangel or John the Baptist's work is extremely important right here in the first chapter of John. I read you, I'm pretty sure, last week, St. Augustine. It says, But it may be that the dull hearts of some cannot yet receive this light. Their sins weigh them down, and they cannot discern it. Let them not think, however, that because they cannot discern it, therefore it is not present to them. For they themselves, because of their sins, are darkness. Just as if you place a blind person in the sunshine, although the sun is present to him, yet he is absent from the sun. In the same way, every foolish man, every unrighteous man, every ungodly man is blind in heart. What course then ought one such a one to take? Let him cleanse the eyes of his heart that he may be able to see God. And it goes on. I read this to you last time. Okay? So we're going to get these figures through John that are like that. And John the Baptist is going to be essential in pointing the way for us to Christ. For these men, for us even, who are blind. And each one of us is blind in our own way. Maybe not fully blind, but the vision's fuzzy, if you will. Okay? And John, John's reason for writing is to clear our vision up. St. John Chrysostom says, Certain men of weak understanding are unable to grasp the truth and the knowledge of God by themselves. And so the Lord chose to come down to them and to enlighten certain men before others about divine matters so that these others might obtain from them in a human way the knowledge of divine things they could not reach by themselves. So in, the, in God's divine plan, he enlightened certain men in order that the others could come to him because those others can't even see, see them, can't see God. Okay, So he enlightens certain men and sends them to these men that are in darkness. Okay, That's the beauty of the workings of God, that he shares his own work of salvation of man with other men. They become like God. They're sent from God and they go and convert the world, being the face of God to the world. That's our job as Christians. Okay, And that's John the Baptist's job. He's down there on the Jordan River, baptizing them in preparation for Christ, pointing the way to Christ. What wasn't Christ the disciple of John also? No, I mean, not in the sense that we think of a disciple, one following and learning at the side of John the Baptist. 
Okay. I mean, there's no re you know revelation to that in that way. Yeah, um, John, John the Baptist, by tradition, lived out in the Qumran community out in the desert. Okay, and so he was separated from all the things that are going on in, in Jerusalem and everything. He was living out there in this desert community preparing for the Messiah. Okay, so it's very possible that they actually didn't meet as adults. Okay, until he saw him on the Jordan River. Even though they were cousins. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Verse 9. The true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world knew him not. The world knew him not. Based upon what we've already said about the prologue, what do you have to say about the world knowing him not? It was not able to do what? Exactly. The world was not able to comprehend him. It was not... So, it, where is the world? What's, what's another uh, image in John for the world then? In darkness. It's, it's in darkness. Exactly. And again, that theme is going to be essential. Remember I told you the prologue, as we read in the Navarre commentary, is very well said. It's like a pebble dropping in a pond, and the ripples will ripple out into the whole gospel. And so as we get these tools, we're going to be able to go out in the gospel and see these things come to life. So the world is in darkness. He came into his own home, and his own people received him not. Okay? And when we're reading this, I get a, get a phantasm, get an image of what's going on. His own people. Not only he created the world. And the, his own creation was absolutely separated from him. It could not comprehend him. But he came into his own people, his own family, and they did not receive him. In other words, they shut the door in his face. Okay? It doesn't say that his own people could not understand him, could not comprehend him. But it's possible that from John's perspective, they understood and yet they still closed the door in his face. They rejected him. Okay? And in fact, in John, as we develop towards the passion, we're going we're gonna to see his own people in some way knowing who he is and choosing apart from God. In fact, they do that in the passion. They actually choose apart from God openly in the text. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, go ahead, it's in verse 12. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. John bore witness to him and cried, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. Okay, go back to verse 14. We're, gonna, we're flying through the prologue because you can get bogged down in the prologue, but the best thing for us to do is scan it and get our, our parts together and then go into the gospel. It's only after we understand the gospel that we can go back and really understand how powerful the prologue is. So we're just going to get our main points down. The word dwelt there in the, in the Greek is skeno. Okay? And it may be better, is better translated tabernacled. It's the same. Tabernacle or dwelt. Made his dwelling, made his tabernacle among us. 
Where else have we seen a tabernacle in the Old Testament? Part of the okay. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant or the entire the entire temple or tent. Right? Turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. When we're going we're going to go back to the Old Testament a lot in this study. So it's a good thing to try to keep your hand in John because it'll be easier to get back to it. Exodus 25. Genesis, Exodus, second book. Exodus 25. Twenty-five, verse eight. Sheila, you want to read And let them make sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, according to all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture. So you shall make it. Okay. This is God's instruction to Moses building the tent in the, in the desert. And so what does he say? That I may dwell in Skano, that I may tabernacle in their midst. Okay? So John uses this same word, this same phrasing, and it's important for us because we've got to be familiar with what took place then in order to understand what John's talking about. What did it look like when God dwelt in the midst of the people, when he tabernacled among the people? What was the sign that he was dwelling there? Yeah, the glory cloud. Chapter 40, verse... Uh, go to chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40. Actually, I haven't seen Exodus, sorry about that. Exodus chapter 40. Verse 33. Go ahead, and he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So what was the sign that the, that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle? Oh, it was the cloud. Okay, when they saw the cloud, they saw the glory of the Lord. It was the sign that God was tabernacling among the people. When that cloud was lifted up, God no longer dwelt there. Okay? When Moses sees God, sees the glory of God, what happens to Moses? His image is changed. He becomes a reflection of the image of God. Okay? He's recreated in the image of God. So what does John say? Go back to the prologue. Chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. So, so John's intentionally using this imagery from Exodus... And he's saying, no longer do you look and see a cloud as the sign of the glory of God. For Jesus Christ himself is that glory. When you look upon Jesus Christ, you look upon the glory of God. And he's going to continue that those who look upon Christ, like Moses who looked upon the face of God, will be changed into his glory. Okay? 
Where's that in the prologue? What number? Verse 14. Verse 14. How many of you memorized the prologue so far? Yeah. There's a statement here uh, that says, who, those who believe in his name mm-hmm. and gave power to become children of God. Yes. Does it mean that those who do not believe in him name are not children of God? Yes. Those who are not Christian are not children of God? From John's perspective, first of all, there's two levels of children of God that we can talk about. All of mankind are made in the image and likeness of God, are made in some sense children of God. And on a natural level, you could say they are children of God. Made in his image and likeness, their reason, their will reflects the things of God. And so in some sense you could say that. But in John's perspective, we're going to see in the next verse... It's not about being naturally made in the image and likeness of God, but it's about being supernaturally remade in the image and likeness of God. To be a partaker and a sharer in the life of God himself. Something above the power of man. A gift upon the gift, as we're going to see in a second. Is that like born again? We're going to get to that. Exactly. That's why he's born of the will of God, not of flesh. That's right. So there's this there's a natural birth that takes place in man, which reflects, in some sense, man reflects the image and likeness of God, but in not in the fullest sense of the of the word or the term. Okay? God has much more planned for us. Alright. Where's my Bible? I lost it. Verse. Okay, verse, let's do verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. We have beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son of the Father. John bore witness to Him and cried, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. What's grace mean? What's the word mean? Literally, just in a. Okay, but literally translated. What's that? Grazie, the land is thanks, right? Is what? Things? Thanks. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Um, Gifts. Yeah, gift is a gift. I guess two. I'm not, I'm not a linguist. Anyways, um, I think it, it comes in two different ways or two different uh, forms of the word, okay? But grace literally is gift, okay? Well, gift and thanks is the same, it's the same yeah, thing. It's, a, it's an offering from what I have to yeah. you. Yeah. Okay? What does John say? From his fullness we have all received what? Grace. 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 Upon grace. A gift upon a gift. Okay? A gift upon a gift. What's he mean? What's, first of all, he's talking about two gifts being given. Two graces being given. What do you think that is? Love. For both of them? No, why not? Okay. <laughs> so, gift of life and gift of new life. 
Okay, there's there's something there's something there, but it's a little bit more in the text itself. What have we just been talking about? What's our background that we've been talking about? Our immediate bra- background in John here. Well, the light. No, just in the verse, just prior to that, he's using an Old Testament background, and what is it? Oh, Moses. Moses and the Exodus. Yeah. Okay, so what's the first gift? What's John's perspective of the first gift of God? And now Jesus is giving a gift upon that gift. Revelation to Moses. Yeah, the law. For the Jews, the law was the gift of God. The first one? Yes, it is the first gift of God. Okay, and it is upon that gift that Jesus bestows a gift. It is upon that grace of the Old Testament that Jesus is bestowing a grace. Okay? We're going to use Carson as a um, Protestant commentator, but he's very good and trustworthy on John. It's highly respected. And the second gift is which one? We're getting to that. It's Jesus' gift. We're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. The Old Testament scriptures are understood to point forward to Jesus, to anticipate him, and thus to prophesy of him. In that sense, he fulfills them. If even the covenant of the law is prophetic in this sense, then when that to which it points has arrived, it is in some sense displaced. It may continue in force as a continual pointer to that which it predicted, but it is val- its valid authority lies primarily in that which it announced and which is now arrived. Okay, that was actually that was before I was supposed to read. Here's what I was supposed to read. The law, i.e. the law covenant, was given by grace and anticipated the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Now that he has come, that same prophetic law covenant is necessarily superseded by that which it prophesied would come. The flow of the passage and the burden of the book as a whole magnifies the fresh grace that has come in Jesus Christ. That grace is necessarily greater than the grace of the law, whose function in John's view was primarily to anticipate the coming of the word. Okay? This grace upon grace, or this gift upon gift, is going to be essential, just as essential as the light and darkness is for us. It's another theme that John's going to use. Okay? In the Old Testament, they received the law. In the New Testament, we get the grace of God, the gift of God, which is the life of God. What distinction did you make between grace and grace? You had said, a, like, "He gave us life, life, and then, and then life. Second life is through Jesus." Right. Okay. So this theme, this division between the law, I should actually put this the other way, so you can one on top of the other, is going to continue in different ways. The law is good, and nature are going to be side by side. Okay? The grace of Jesus Christ is supernature, the supernatural life. Okay? That division is going to continue in John between the flesh and the spirit. Okay? I am sure I understood the second grace. The second grace is the life of God itself being bestowed upon man. Okay. Okay? Jesus Christ did not come 
in a sense, to abolish the law in the sense that we think of it. You get rid of it. Jesus Christ made the law what it was supposed to be in the first place. The law of God in the Old Testament was the will of God for man. Okay, not as a dictator wills something, but it was God's view of what was good for man. God had created man, and he knew what was good for him. That's what the commandments are all about. Right? The commandments are man's instruction on how to live properly. The whole of the law is man's instruction on how to live properly. But the problem in the Old Testament is that law was written upon stone, and in man's heart, a different law had started to live after the fall. Jesus Christ is the incarnate will of the Father. So when he stands as a human being, he stands as the will of God enfleshed. You can look at Jesus Christ and you can see the Old Testament. You can see the law the way it was supposed to be. He is the walking law. That's why Jesus Christ fulfills the whole law. Every, what's what's St. Paul, every tittle and, and, and iota, right? Every little bit of the law because Jesus Christ is the incarnate law. When he acts, he's the acting will of God on earth. Okay? Throughout the gospel, what John is going to do is he's going to take the law and he's going to recreate it. Okay, we could say the law, we continue with the law and creation, or recreation, or the old creation and the new creation. He's going to take the law and he's going to enflesh it. Okay? And that theme is going to continue. And throughout the gospel, every man that we meet, pretty much, is going to be living on the natural level and understanding Jesus on the natural level. Or I should say, misunderstanding Jesus on the natural level. And again and again, Christ says, you must become a supernatural man. Okay, that's the entire point of the gospel, to take man as he's living in his flesh and lift him up to live in the spirit. We'll come back to this. And we could probably add ten more words to this that would show the division between nature and supernature. The gift upon the gift. And Jesus is going to bring about man's life the way it's supposed to be. Man's a living in a sense, material being, Jesus is going to make him a living supernatural being. Does that make sense? Yeah. How is um like certain parts of the law were done, for example, like hardness of their hearts, mm-hmm. circumcision. If he had stayed faithful to his wife, would we have circumcision? How is that a gift? Wait, for, say Abraham. Okay. Circumcision. If he was faithful to his wife, he not follow oh. I mean, how is that a gift? What here that's a great question. What is circumcision all about? Okay, well we're gonna we could say a hundred things about what it's all about. Jesus is going to come and reveal to us the real reason or the real revelation of what circumcision was about. What you're pointing to is a little bit maybe a little too advanced for us here, but it's not that, you're right, the sign of circumcision, why it came about, was not a good thing. Okay, that's what you're pointing to, right? But what was being accomplished through the circumcision was a good thing. And it's that thing which Jesus is going to bring about. What God wanted circumcision to do in the Old Testament 
he is going to make really happen in the New Testament. The law in the Old Testament is going to be in flesh and become part of us now. Okay? Via grace. What's that? Via grace. Via grace, exactly. No longer is the law, as St. Paul, Paul talks about his old life where he fought against, against the law. In his body was a different law. But those who have been baptized into Christ, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, those who have been baptized into Christ now walk the law and it becomes part of us where we can do what the law was trying to do in the Old Testament and could never accomplish. Okay? Alright, keep this in mind. We're going to come back to it a hundred thousand times. Okay. Verse 16. Verse was verse 15. John bore witness to him and cried. Go ahead, answer. Uh, and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There we go. Okay. There we've got the same parallel going. Okay, go ahead. No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. Okay, hold on, hold on. Does anything bother you about that verse? Yeah, because I thought Moses saw God. Ah, which one? And the burning bush. Hmm. Has any, is that, I mean... Well, turn, turn back to uh, Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 6. Joe, you want to read that for us? 6 through 8. He said to them, Hear my words. If there be among you a prophet of the Lord, I will appear to him in a vision, or I will speak to him in a dream. But it is not so with my servant, Moses, who is most faithful in all my house. For I speak to him mouth to mouth and plainly, and not by riddles and figures that deceive the Lord. Okay. Why? Yeah. Is that all in verse 8? Why then were you not afraid to speak ill of my servant Moses? Okay, what if somebody else have a different translation of mouth to mouth? Face to face. Face to face. Okay. Hmm. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Right, so he beholds the presence of the Lord. Okay, so it's the same idea. It's a new American, I think. And they use a little bit more of a freedom of interpretation, if you will. That's going to drive you crazy. Chapter 33, verse 11. Chapter 33, verse Exodus 33, 11. Marianne, you want to read that for us? 33, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses face to face. And the man is wont to speak to his friend. Okay, well, boy, maybe John hasn't read the Old Testament. 
I doubt it. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 34, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 34. Yes. Uh, it was Exodus 33, verse 11. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. Francis, you want to read that for us? Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Okay, boy. I mean, we're just getting slammed. John the man just getting slammed here because it doesn't appear that he's right. Okay. What is the result again? Well, verse in chapter 34, you can look at it. Chapter 34, right there. So, verse 29 through 35. Go ahead, Francis. 29 through 35. I'm sorry, Exodus. Well, I was back. Exodus. Sorry. Exodus 34. My fault. Guys, I'm very tired tonight. I apologize. Exodus 34. Okay, we're in Exodus chapter 34. Yeah. We're all in cahoots. Yeah. 34. 29. Verse 29. Francis, go ahead. It's hot in here. Yeah. As Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the commandments in his hands, he did not know what that the skin of his face had become radiant while he conversed with the Lord. Okay. So, what happens to Moses? He sees God face to face and he's changed into the image and likeness of God. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. New Testament. Don't worry when you get there. Acts, Romans. After the four Gospels, Book of Acts, Book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Chapter 3. Verse 12. Sheila, you want to read that for us? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not see the end of the day's splendor. But their minds were hardened for, to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when a man turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is his spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay. Now, why does John say that no one has seen the Lord? Well, go back to John. We have to look at the verse again. And we're all, that's it. We're all going to go flip around again. Verse 16. Yeah, verse uh, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. 
Now, I did a lot of research in the church fathers. Whenever you do a tough verse, don't worry. We're not like brilliant and like suddenly we discovered a problem with the scriptures. Never happens. The Jews already thought of the problem. This, the, the early church fathers already dealt with it. Okay, they already considered the text. Augustine and, and they're basically across the board. Say, in the Old Testament, when God is revealed, he is revealed according to the capacity of man to receive him. Okay? It makes sense, because if we were to see God in his essence, guess what would happen to us? It does. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, we would be completely consumed into him. Okay, or whatever you could say, we get into theology, you can ask this to Dr. Marshall when he's here next week. Okay, what would happen to man? Okay, if you were to see him in his essence. And Augustine and others say, but Jesus Christ is unique because he's not only a man, but he's also God. So for the first time, we can say that a man with his eyes has seen God in his essence. Okay? And now what does that mean for us? That we can look upon Christ and we can see God. Because he who sees God is totally transformed into him. Okay? So it gets into a tough concept in theology. But for John and for our purposes here, we want to talk about transformation as St. Paul's talking about transformation into Christ. And that's what his whole gospel, again, is going to be about. To behold Christ. And he who beholds Christ, who comes to know Christ, will be united with him. The two will become one. And those who look upon Christ and believe in him and see in him who he really is, namely the eternal word of God, will be transformed into him. Okay, we have a unique opportunity in Christ, and St. John's entire gospel is written to get us to say, to get us to look at him. Look at him, stare at him, see him for who he is. That's his entire goal. Yeah, Francis. Now in the Old Testament, nobody really, really see the face of God. Okay, they either see him. See something of him. You see something of him, he lays back. No, in, 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 but we saw Jesus right. coming to men from. Right. Why do we deserve to see Jesus? We don't deserve to see Jesus. And, and why God sent us such a gift? Because he loves us. That's the only thing we can say. It's in the scriptures God has revealed as, as perfect love. And there's no, there, we do not deserve by any means. It is simply the gift and the grace of God. It's, a, it's an important question because Protestants misunderstand the Catholic pers perspective as though we somehow think we earned our rights to God. Absolutely not. God, we have absolutely no rights to be, to become a partaker in the divine nature. It is an absolute free gift. It that's is a grace of God bestowed upon us. Okay? Marianne, did you have something to say? Oh, I was just going to maybe you were thinking too like why then and you can look at one of the gospels says that the fullness of time he said St. Paul so there's, there's that aspect of it too like he gave the gift freely but it was this particular time that was right for, for him to come yeah. why um, uh, it is so, uh, I have read many times about because uh, suddenly he came in fullness of time mm -hmm. why, what, why is the meaning fullness of 
at the exact right time. First of all, God had given himself to us in the beginning. Man walked away from God, and the entire Old Testament, as we talked about in our Indian series, was a preparation for the full revelation of Christ. And so St. Paul says, he, God prepared man over time, calling him back to him. And then when he had everything ready for the revelation, he bestowed the gift. Because if it had happened at another time, Christ would not have been able to be received. Okay? So he prepares, in a sense, the garden. He prepares the fertile ground and then bestows the gift. And so it's... I think Mary was right. That's what you were asking, right? Why at this time? And all I was going to say is that God gave himself in the beginning. This man who walked away from him. And finally, after all of those years, God was able to say, give him, give man the gift in a way that it would be stowed properly. The reason I asked was that certain man was chosen to see something of God in the past. Yeah. And now suddenly Jesus bound boom in front of Yeah. So that whole testament, that revelation was continual and more and more and more until finally the incarnate word stood before us. Okay? Which makes sense for him to see like Sabatino's uh, analogy that's here. He's that he's that completion. Okay. So you can see you can see him fulfilling like for the Yeah. 
and what had been foretold. Well, Some would come to signs. Okay, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. What is it about these men? Because look, there's a lot of Jews that knew the Old Testament and knew the prophecies. And many were going down to John in the Jordan. Okay, seeing in his action the work something of what the Messiah was come was to come to do. But why is it that the Pharisees here come forward and start asking these questions? Am I threatening their position? Okay, maybe. What was that? What do they care? So? Is it a sign of Christ? Okay. Yeah, that's true. And we'll get, we're gonna, again, we're going to get to that. What is it about the Pharisees? What is it about the Pharisees? Who were the Pharisees? Who were the Pharisees? It's essential that we know who's asking the question. Yeah. Were they were they Jewish religious? They were the guy in power. They were religious. They were in power. Were they the one? What was their identity? Well, short question. Okay. The Pharisees being concerned with the law, being concerned with ritual. If John was giving them a new ritual, say baptism, they would want to know what is this. Okay. Form to what we're. Okay. So they're concerned about ritual. They're concerned about the law. Okay, that's true. They're concerned about particular ritual and particular law. Okay, and that has everything to do with why they go down and ask John what he's doing. What? Okay. N.T. Wright says it is clear that the great issues of the day had to do with the proper stance for a Jew to take up when faced with what seemed to them to be the encroachments of non-Jewish ways of life. The Pharisees saw themselves as standing firm for the old ways, the traditions of Israel, against paganism from without and assimilation from within. Their extreme focus on Torah, on the law, makes perfect sense within this setting, and so does the increasing concentration in this and subsequent periods on the issues of purity. Okay? They were extremely focused on ritual purity. Both in this period and subsequently, it is not absolutely vital that we discover precisely which purity laws they obeyed and which they felt able to circumvent at which period. What matters is the ideology that motivated them to focus so strongly on purity and to relate it in, in any way to the purity demanded in the temple. Faced with social, political, and cultural pollution at the level of national life as a whole, one natural reaction was to concentrate on personal cleanness, to cleanse and purify an area over which one did have control as a compensation for the impossibility of cleansing and purifying an area, the outward and invisible political one, invisible political one, over which one had none. The Pharisees wanted and tried to get all of the Jews to follow the purity rituals of the temple in their daily lives. The purity rituals which were prescribed just for the priests, they wanted the people to do every day on their own in order to cleanse in their hearts and prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. They were extremely concerned about purity. And for the Jews, purity was obtained through washings. 
Okay? Baptism was not something new to Christianity. Baptism was present in the Old Testament. In fact, John is baptizing on the Jordan River in the Old Testament, even though it's written about in the New. Okay? They see him making these acts of ritual purity in public, cleansing men. And because of their own, their own way of life, they go down to him. And they start asking him questions. So that is their concern. They've already got this built in. They're doing this. And John's making a big deal about it. And so they go down there and they say, are you the Christ? Actually, they don't say that. What do they say? They say, yeah, they say, who are you? Right? And hidden in that is really the question, why are you baptizing? That's the question that comes forth later, right? Who are you? And what does John say? Not okay. Does anything strike you funny about that? Yeah. What? Yeah. Why does he say that? Has anybody, Mon, has anybody ever walked up to you and said, Who are you? <laughs> yes. Have you ever once in your life responded, I am not Jesus Christ? <laughs> I've never. I've been asked who am I a lot of times. I've never answered. I'm not the Christ. But John does that. Okay. Again, you got to read the text that way. Start asking yourself those questions. Why does he respond that way? Why does he respond that way? Because he knows Christ. Because what? What did they expect? What were the Jews looking for? The Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, what would happen? What's that? He was going to be the king. Turn to the book of Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Baruch, Ezekiel, somewhere in there. Watch out. Find Isaiah and go forward. Ezekiel. Watch out. Chapter 36. Zechariah. 
Okay, there's the first Maccabees and backwards is Malachi, and then back one more is Zechariah. Okay? Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13, verse 1. Who's got it? Go ahead, Raymond. In that day there should be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for the washing of the sinner and of the unclean. Okay, we could keep going with prophecies in the Old Testament. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. We're not going to go there. If you want to write it down, Joel chapter 2, verse 28. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 14. We could continue on. There's prophecies throughout the entire Old Testament that when God sends the Messiah in that day, God will open up floodwaters upon the people and cleanse them through those waters from all their unrighteousness, from all their uncleanness. So what happens? John's down there on the Jordan River, and he's baptizing them. He's cleansing them in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. And they go down there, and they say, they're saying, is this the Messianic age? Is, are we, is this what's going on? Are you the Christ? They freak out. Because when, what's that? They freak out. Yeah, in some sense, they freak out. Are you the Christ? Okay, turn back to John. Come on, Nora, turn back. He confessed, he did not deny, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Okay, we're going to come back to Elijah. It would not take us too long. Who are they referring to when they ask him, who are you the prophet? Who are they referring to? That's a good question. Are they talking about Elijah? Clearly not, because then they'd just be repeating themselves. Who are they talking about? How do you know he's talking about? They're talking about Moses. Was it Moses talking about? Was it Deuteronomy that he said the little prophets like me? Good. Deuteronomy what? I don't know. Turn to Deuteronomy real quick. Trust me, we're almost done. You're going to give me three more minutes. It'll be five minutes over. That's okay. Deuteronomy 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 
spoken. If a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, there, the thing does not take place or prove true. It is a word that the Lord has not spoken. Okay, and so on. A prophet like me, he will send. So they go down to the Jordan. They say, are you the prophet? For the Jews, the prophet is Moses. Okay, and they're expecting that in the Messianic age or sometime around them, God is going to send the prophet. And the prophet is a prophet like Moses. So what do you want to ask yourself? What's the next question you need to know? It's a prophet like Moses. What, who do you need to know to recognize the prophet? And what did Moses do? Led the people out of slavery and crossed the Red Sea, leaving behind them the land of sin and slavery and death and bringing them to Mount Sinai where they would behold God. Okay? says, inasmuch as there were many prophets in Israel, there was one in particular who had been prophesied by Moses, who was especially expected in accordance with the saying, the Lord our God shall raise up a prophet like me for you from your brothers, him you shall hear. They asked a third time, not if he was a prophet, but if he was the prophet. Okay? So they identify, they say, it's possible that this man is the prophet prophesied by Moses. Let's go one, just real quick, one step further. If a prophet like Moses is going to come, the people must be in what state, Annie? Um, not in sin, purified. No. If a prophet like Moses is going to come and do what Moses did, the people have to be what? Oh, in slavery. Yeah, in sin and in slavery. Okay? So, in some sense, when the prophet comes... There's going to be a condemnation of the rulers that are oppressing the people. Okay? There's going to be a confrontation. And in John, that confrontation is going to take place. Okay? Next time, we're going to talk about Elijah. So, I ask you, go back and read about Elijah. Who was Elijah? What was his life? And why is it that they're looking for Elijah here on the Jordan River? Okay, there's a reason in the Old Testament. First Kings. You can look at First Kings. Okay? Elias, we just don't In First Kings, just find the story of Elijah and read it. Okay? Let's conclude in prayer. You know, my father is a feeling of spiritual song. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. John the Evangelist, Christ is risen. I'll try to come with a little more energy next time, guys.